Thank you so very much. Let's take our Bibles for our Bible study this morning and let's head to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, please. We're in a series on the life of David. We are going back to that. We had taken a break because of the Christmas holidays and did some messages on Jesus Christ. But I want to return to this series today in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and get ourselves reacquainted with David and deal with some practical matters. Now, if you've been in our study thus far, whether you've been here or you've been watching via the live stream, you know that in with studies we've pointed out that David was an exceptional man. The scriptures make it very clear that he was a very godly man. He is called the man after God's own heart on several different occasions. We know that he's a godly man and that he wrote many of the Psalms. We know as well that he is called in the Psalms the apple of God's eye. So he's, he's a really godly man. Though he has flaws, he's human. He isn't perfect. He does love the Lord. And he does respond sometimes after he makes mistakes with the spirit that is a good illustration of how we should respond. But not only is he a godly man, as we've gone through the scriptures, we've pointed out that he is also a very successful king. You recall that as we've gone through the life, in his early years, he was working for King Saul. And by the time King Saul had left off the scene, had died, David inherited a kingdom that was in total disarray. And David then comes to the throne and he reunites the tribes. And as the scripture says, that he went on and grew great and the Lord of hosts was with him. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital city, moving it from Hebron over to Jerusalem. He as well establishes bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and reorienting the Jews to that worship that they had gotten away from. He gets the priest rotating on a regular basis. So it's well-organized system. When it comes to his politics, he during his time he is able to expand their territory like never before he subdues all the enemies and under his rule once he's established they're never attacked in fact there's no threats against their nation for 60 years following David and so he's an extremely successful king he's successful in getting the politics and getting the finances taken care of getting the the normal commerce and trade and inflation he's a successful leader and yet for all of it well let me let me point out i forgot i wanted to do this as you go through scriptures later on all the succeeding kings David is the standard by which all the other kings are judged. Time and time again, as David your father, as David your father, as his descendants, they're all compared to David. Great king, wonderful king. And yet there's an area of his life where David really falls flat. I mean, he falls with a vengeance. He hits his face and he's just wiped out. And that's when it comes to his family life, his private life. His family life of how he interacts with others in his immediate family. And David really blows it big time. Now I'm not saying that David doesn't love his family. I'm not saying he doesn't care about his family. That everything is all about the kingdom and the job and he forgets about his family. That's not true. That isn't, that isn't totally where David is at. As you go through scriptures and you follow the story... When David and Bathsheba have committed adultery and she's uh, pregnant with child and then that child is born, David weeps and fasts over that child who is sickly. And David wants that child to recover. So David is very concerned even over his newborn child. He loves that child. Like you love your children that you haven't yet gotten to know when they are first born. 
David as well, when there's a time when that child does pass away, does die, we read in verse 24, if you look at it, that he comforts his wife Bathsheba, who he's taken to be his wife during this time period, and he comforts her. It's not that he's inconsiderate of her, or he just tells her to get over it. He's very compassionate towards her. Oh, we know that that what happens, as we're going to talk about in the stories today, David's going to hear at one point that all of his sons have been killed at one moment. And when David hears about that, David is just absolutely devastated, thinking all of his boys have been killed, who are, by this point are grown men. And David is moved. He cares for his family. He loves his family. As the story moves along, and we're going to see it later on, his son Absalom flees the territory and there is now a great distance between David and his son Absalom. And David weeps over. He longs for it. The passage talks about how he is, he is longing and, and basically brokenhearted that he can't see Absalom for an extended period of time. And then Absalom, when he does come back, he comes back with a bitter heart and he has a revolt against David. He leaves a rebellion. And when Absalom is killed in that rebellion... David is so upset, he says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would God I had died, he said. Oh, my son, my son Absalom. He is a dad who loves, a husband who cares. And yet he, he just makes some terrible mistakes when it comes to his family. Now, all these things are written for an example for us. They're not just written to tickle our fancy and to learn about history. God has recorded the events, even the ugly events, even the mistakes, for our benefit so we would learn what not to do, what to do. And so taking that, that cue from that passage in Corinthians, let's take time today and do a real practical message, a study on family living, how we're supposed to operate within our homes, in our privacy, how we're supposed to operate as parents of youngsters and oldsters, how we're supposed to be reacting to our family members. And let's look at David from this point of view, what we can learn from him, and basically this point is let's not repeat the mistakes that he made. And the mistakes that stand out to me that we want to avoid are basically fourfold. Number one, David's major mistake was this. He did not hold to God's high standard for his private life. For his private life. The private life that he thought nobody would be impacted by. If I make a decision, it'll just affect me and me only, but it affects his family big time. He made the mistake thinking that he could do whatever he wanted to do. You know what I'm referring to. God has very high standards for David and for others, including us. In the Old Testament, God had laid out the standard very clearly that of all the Jews, including David, that they were to be holy people. Just like he repeats in the New Testament, be ye holy for I am holy. God had set the standard for them to operate on a level where they were to obey his covenant, do what he said, follow his commandments, the commandments that even affected private life, the commandments that even talked about honoring father and mother. The commandments that talked about private life, about not coveting neighbor's wife and goods. The private life that talked about not having a, an adulterous relationship. And David violates several of these commands because he didn't hold to God's high standard when it came to his private life, thinking that he was the exception, thinking that he could get away with it. 
We've, we've talked about what David, the mistakes he made, especially this sinful mistake where in 1 Samuel, we read the story already, we've discussed it at length, where David, when the other kings go out to battle, David has this lapse in his own life. He stays home. And while he's home, he goes on the rooftop and he, you know, whatever reason, is he out there because it's hot? Is he out there because he can't sleep? We don't know if it's something he ate. He's out there and he sees a woman who is bathing on our housetop in this tiered city. And he craves her. He's, his passions are aroused by her. So he has her come to the palace. And we know the story. We've talked about that. They get together even though she's married to somebody and she's the granddaughter of his closest advisor. They have, a tr- they have this, this tryst together. They, they, they have this one night fling. And David thinks it's all covered up. Nobody will know. But she ends up being pregnant. And then David wants to cover up the pregnancy and so he brings her husband back from the battlefield and the whole story unfolds that he wants to get the husband to go home to the wife so that it'll look like it's the husband's child and the husband refuses to go because his troops are still in the battle. He's not going to go and enjoy the comforts of his home while his own troops are in the battle. So what David has to do is David ends up covering it up by killing the man and having the man, his life taken in an in a secondary way, you know, suicide by battle. You know, we hear about that, suicide by police. This, this time David wants murder by battle. He wants the man to be put at the front lines and everybody else retreat and that man's going to be left to fend for himself and he can't, he's killed. So David thinks he's got everything covered up. After a few days, weeks of, of the mourning for the husband, he takes the, the wife and then they're going to pretend that everything's okay and maybe it's just a premature birth. But God knows about it. And God intervenes in it. And God sends the prophet, and the prophet says, David, you have sinned. And in fact, he makes these comments to him that he says that um, in verse 14, he says, by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And so David is brokenhearted. He repents. And when he repents, he says in verse 13, David said to the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And the prophet responds and says, the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. So he's forgiven. By grace, God forgives him. But the prophet goes on, he says in verse 14, the child, there's going to be a consequence, the child that is born unto you from this union, the child shall die. And so there's an immediate consequence. The child is, his life is taken. And yet, God in his grace, as time goes by, he still blesses David. In fact, that's how this chapter ends. If you look at the end of the chapter, you read in verse 24, David comforts Bathsheba, who's lost this child, and he went in unto her, he lay with her, and she bears a son. And they called the name of the son, what's your Bible read? Have you ever heard of that guy before? Okay, so Solomon is born, who's beloved of the Lord. And then you read in verse 26 and following that David still has success in battle. In fact, he goes in this battle and and his troops are out there and they're ready to take the city and Joab says, King David, why don't you come and you can finish off the battle. And David goes and he gets the the crown and he becomes this, excuse me, this victor even in battle. So God is blessing him. Even though he has this mar in his background, this, this huge scar, this blemish, God, by grace, is still blessing, and thank God that he does. Before you cast too many rocks and stones at David, have you ever fallen flat on your face and sinned against the Lord and still 
He's given you grace and mercy. And for that, I am very thankful that God still extends grace to me. And he forgives. And God gives a second chance and a third chance. Well, David's experiencing that. But there's still a long-term consequence that happens. As the story unfolds, David's, David's sin is known to everybody. It's being publicized. And what happens is it really affects his own family. David has kids. His kids are grown by this time. He has several sons. And those sons, they know what David has done. Everybody knows what David has done by now. David has repented. He's not hidden it. It's, it's open news. How does David respond to these grown boys? How does he tell them? What does he say to them now? And he says, yeah, okay, I've, I committed adultery. I murdered somebody. What do you tell your kids who are old enough to understand when you're being a hypocrite? God may forgive you, but may it still mar your kids? Might it still scar them? Well, that's what happens in this story. It drastically affects David's kids. It sets a pattern for the kids that is absolutely amazing. And the prophet said, it's going to affect your kids. What you have done, back up in the passage, that where he's talking to him in chapter 12, when the prophet is revealing his, uncovering his sin, he said in verse 9, Wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil? You killed Uriah. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them unto somebody else, and he shall lie with thy neighbors in the sight of the sun. Your own family is going to be tragically impacted by this. Does it ever happen that what we do in private affects our kids and our family? For, for instance, the words you choose to use in private, do they sometimes come up in your kids' conversations? Do they watch and repeat? For instance, the attitude you display when it comes to a trial. And then sometimes you wonder, where do my kids get such an angry spirit? Why do they, why do they you know, respond the way they, they respond and they strike back? Have you looked in a mirror? I'm not saying every time that that's the case, but oftentimes kids learn how to respond by looking at the parents. In fact, when we, when we talk about this idea of you, you say you kids, you've got to be respectful okay, towards others or, or you know, treat your mother or treat your father in a respectful fashion. If you don't, they won't. You know, if, if you're talking down your boss, is it a surprise they're going to talk down their teacher? Uh, when it comes to this idea about, about authorities over us, Pastor Tony was sharing with me that a while back when he was doing junior church, he was talking about how we need to be respectful. And if the president were to walk into the room, what would you do? He said it was very interesting. Very interesting how some of the kids reacted. How they just said, and this was, this was um, during Obama's term, they said, oh, I would never stand for him. I would get up and walk out of the room. We're talking 10, 11, 12-year-old kids. That one of them just pipes up and he, his term was, he's just one of those Democrats. Where did he learn that? 
Where did he learn? And when, when Pastor Tony did the proper thing and saying, now wait a minute, the Bible teaches we are to respect our authorities over us. He said, they debated with me. They argued that you don't have to respect that man, that president. My friend, no matter who the president is, we are to respect the authority, the position. You need to be careful what you say around little ears and big ears. It makes a difference. It makes an impact. How you act when it comes to, you know, when somebody calls, do you lie on the phone? Then you wonder why your kids might lie. See, all these things, you know, how we respond, they do have impact. Then David, David affected his family by not holding to God's high standard when it came to his own personal life. And so it tragically impacted his own family, his own children, his own sons, which is going to lead us into where we want to go further. Okay? David in his private life, not only in his choices, but he didn't hold to God's high standards in his marriage. I should put it here, marriages. Okay? And that's the point. Is that David... David says, okay, I'm going to do this thing. This thing that is somewhat popular, somewhat, you know, it, it's, it's beneficial as a king. Well, David did this thing when it comes to marrying multiple ladies. He practiced polygamy. And so he has all these different wives. He has at least 10 concubines. Each one of the wives, but Michael, had at least one son. He has 19 boys and one daughter that we know of. Do you think there's any potential for family arguments? Do you think any kind of family rivalry is, put, is a possibility here? Do you think there could be any jealousies you know, that David didn't follow? And, and my point is that some would suggest that David was just doing a normal thing. No, he wasn't. It might be in some cases normal, but this wasn't what God's high standard was to have all these wives. The, 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 the misconception that many have is polygamy was very common and everybody did it. You can't back that up with scripture. You can't back that up with history. Okay? Did it happen? Yes. But was it real common so that everybody at that time had multiple wives? No. No. In fact, you can go through scripture and you can find some of the Old Testament patriarchs who had more than one wife. But you also find some of the Old Testament characters who only had one wife. So to say that all of them did it, that's wrong. That's erroneous. Okay? And when you go back and you understand the history, that it was typically the wealthier classes that would have multiple wives. And there's a reason why. I'm not trying to bust on ladies. Okay, I really am not. Why isn't you wouldn't have multiple wives? Simple reason. You couldn't afford them. You couldn't afford them. No offense, ladies. That's not what I mean. You just, if you have multiple wives, it's multiple. Not, I didn't say trouble. I didn't say that. I, I'm trying to avoid that. Okay. Don't send me an email. They said it. Okay. It was done often to, as a display of wealth or prestige. It was done to form political alliances. If, if you look at it in all reality, okay, it was done at times to foster men's personal gratifications. It really comes out of a low view of ladies. You know, and so that's not God's high standard. God's high standard wasn't for this. 
God didn't encourage this, didn't promote it. You know, in fact, it goes against the word of God from the beginning of creation. In the beginning of creation, he talks about one man, one woman. Okay? God didn't make, you know, Adam didn't lose multiple ribs. Okay? He's just one man, one woman. As you go through scriptures, this passage is repeated about one man, one woman. Jesus repeats it on several occasions. He talks about that same thing. We read in Ephesians, the great passage that talks about marriage relationships, this passage about one and one with God. One and one equals one. Okay, that same idea is there. We know that 1 Corinthians talks about having one husband, one wife. In fact, it's just clarified that church leaders just make sure there's only one wife involved. When we go to the Old Testament, God specifically warned the kings not to have multiple wives. He's saying, but the king shall not multiply horses, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he may multiply horses, neither shall he multiply wives. They were told, don't do this. Kings, don't do this. David did it. David did it. David, for some reason, said, well, others have done it. Others can have multiple wives. And with all that, and every occasion where there is multiple, you know, pulling me shows up, every occasion there's, there's additional problems to the family. Well, David had the problems in his family. That because he made bad personal choices and not holding to God's high standard for personal holiness, for not holding to God's high standard when it came to his marriage, he ends up having problems. Now, let me pause before I go any further. There are many New Testament passages that tell us what is the high standard for married couples. The high standard like husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The high standard of ladies, follow, submit to your husband's leadership. The high standard of dwelling with them in wisdom so that your prayers be not hindered. And if we were to summarize the high standards that were to be following in our families, we would say, okay, it's for one man and one woman. We don't have to follow what the culture is saying. We follow what the Word of God teaches. One man, one woman. We know that it's to be a lifelong commitment to one's marriage until what does this part? Did you say debt? Okay. It's death. You said death. But often people say, say till D-E-B-T, debt do us part. That's not God's high standard. Okay. Do I understand that divorce is, is allowed in Scripture? I do. But it is not that which is supposed to be sought after and chased after, especially by God's people. Does it happen? Yes. Is there an allowance for that at times? Yes. In, in certain cases. But God's basic high standard is lifelong commitment. As, as, that should be your goal. As best as possible. The husbands are to love as Christ loved. That's a very high standard. It's a tremendously high standard. It's a tremendously hard and high standard for ladies to follow the husbands and to give them honor all at the same time. It's, it's a high standard that you'd let not the sun go down upon your wrath, especially when it comes to family relationships. It's a high standard that you keep yourself, in a society like we live in, keep yourself mentally and physically pure for your spouse alone. That's a high standard. 
that God says we're supposed to abide you by. It is a high standard to keep growing closer in your relationship. It's a high standard to have mutual respect and consideration for your spouse all the time. It's an easy standard for me to do that when we're here and Deb and I are in front of you. And then, then to go through the motions. It's a high standard and harder to do when the two of us are in private. It's a challenge. And David didn't step up to the challenge. And as a result, it created difficulties, challenges for him. Just, just chapter 13 continues his story. Chapter 13 goes from David's, David's infamous sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, into the beginning of how it affected his kids. And in the story in chapter 13, to set the story right, and I could read it all in, at length, but let me tell you for sake of time, it involves some of David's children by different wives. We have Amnon, who is the oldest of David's sons. So he's going to be the heir apparent. He's the crown prince. And Amnon has a stepsister who is, has a, a full brother, Absalom and Tamar, our full blood brother and sister. And so here we have Amnon. And this is a, an R-rated setting. Okay, what, what Amnon does is Amnon, he falls in love with his stepsister Tamar. And he just, he doesn't know how to function. He is in, so enthralled by her. He can't, he can't breathe when she walks in the room. He, 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 he can't look at anybody else. He's just enraptured by Tamar. And so his cousin, Jonadab, says, what's wrong? And he says, oh, I just love Tamar. I just want to be with her. I, just, I think about her all the time. He says, well, why don't you spend time? I don't know why. I, I just, I, you know, I cringe when I get closer. But I just, I, I just got to have her. So why don't you do this? Pretend you're sick. And you are lovesick, but pretend you're sick. When your dad comes and says, what's wrong? You're laying in bed. You can't get out of bed. You're so sick. Tell him that he should send Tamar to come and feed you and have Tamar take care of you. Forget the, that they have servants. Forget that there's nurses. Forget that the slaves should prepare the meals, the servants. Have dad send Tamar, and that'll give you private time with Tamar. So dad comes in, and he's sick. Amnon's feigning sickness to the, his love sickness has got him all befuddled and what happens is dad comes in to, and, and Amnon says please send Tamar and dad says hey good idea so he sends Tamar in she's cooking for him she brings the food to his bedroom and he insists that all the servants leave and that she comes in and despite her the, the improprieties there and the hesitation he insists she comes in and starts feeding him and as she is feeding him, he can't help himself. He all of a sudden just does the R-rated thing, the X-rated thing. What he does is he attacks her. He molests her. He rapes her. And when the act is all done, she is just, you know, she's beside herself. She is ashamed. She feels guilty. She feels defiled. And Amnon's love turns to hatred. Get out of here. 
I don't want to, and he demands the servants come in and lock her out and treating her like it's her fault. How, do, how come Amnon even thought this? Why did Amnon think it's okay to take somebody who isn't your spouse? Why did he drop his standard the way he did? Does it strike you like father, like son? That for some reason in his warped, twisted, perverted, lustful mind, it was okay. It was okay because dad had done it. And dad had gotten away with it. Private sins don't stay private. Not holding to a high standard for your marriage, it affects. It affects family. It can have generational impact. And that leads us to the third mistake that he made. And how does David respond to this? David did not hold to God's high standard for parents. See, God, David knew God has a very high standard for parents. Old Testament, New Testament. God very clearly has stated multiple times, children are a blessing. And yet, for all the blessing, they need instruction. And they need to be challenged at times. They need to be confronted. They need to be corrected. And so David knew this. David, David, like you know, the other psalmist, he has written that children are a heritage of the Lord. And having children, that man, that's great. That's wonderful. And that's, that's awesome. And it is, yes? Oh, that was convincing. Whoa. Aren't children a blessing? Yeah, yeah, okay. You're not convinced either. Okay. Okay. Now, we know this, that all those kids that we're thrilled about, they're to honor their parents, yes? Okay, the Bible makes it clear, honor your father and mother. We know that this is what God has, a high standard for the kids, that that high standard is, is clearly, you know, on their part, the kids are supposed to obey. But in the high standard for kids to obey, what's the standard for the parents? They, it's just, you got to teach them. You got to teach them. You got to instruct them. Teach your sons. We read that how it's these words that I command you, they're going to be in your heart. But you got to talk. You got to teach your kids spiritual truth. And you do it all the time at any occasion. You're, you're supposed to be sharing the spiritual truth. It isn't the Sunday school teacher's job. It isn't the youth pastor's job to do all the spiritual training of your kids. It's your job. It's your job. And you're to be teaching them. You're to be teaching them. By, by your words, you're to be teaching them by your example. By your example of, you have a love for the word of God that you read it and they see it. They see you do it. You desire prayer and they see you pray. They see how you respond in worship. That worship is important, that you listen, that you, that you try to get something out of it. Not that you play with your phone the whole time, and then when you walk out, you say, oh, I wish Burgraph would be quicker. That'll never happen. But you, know, you walk out, and they learn from that. They understand, is worship important based on your example? Not just what I say. In fact, little of what I say will impact them compared to what you do. And so children need that instruction. Because a child, he says, train up a child and the way he should go. And when he is older, when he's whisker-bearing years, that's literally the word. When he's in that, those years where all of a sudden he's able to have whiskers, he won't depart from the truth. But somebody's had to be teaching them. 
And as well that that teaching at times does involve correction. There are multiple passages. You know them. You've heard them. That it is required that what we need to do is train our children. And sometimes that means we need to correct them. But I don't want to do that. I love my child. A a child left to himself will bring the mother to shame. The, The word of God talks about if we withhold the correction... You know, we may, we may be hurting that child spiritually. They may end, up, may end up rejecting all authority, including God's, and end up in hell. We read that we need to correct our children. Otherwise, they're not going to give rest to our soul. Uh, the, the scripture is replete with the idea that parents need at times to correct. And if you don't, you don't love now, I know in modern America, the idea of correction is, is an idea of it's taboo, it's, it's archaic. It's God's word. You don't change God's word. The only manual that you have for raising kids is God's word. There isn't any other manual. Well, at least I never saw one. Okay? The doctor never gave us one. But I'm so glad God did. And so I need to oblige God's standards, which involve that idea of that times we need to correct. And David knew it. David knew his mentor was Samuel. Samuel lived it. Samuel saw it. How what happened to Eli when Eli would not correct his adult children. We're not talking here in this sermon about little kids, by the way. Every child that we're talking about is a young adult. Old enough to have physical relationships. And even then, the parents are supposed to be doing correcting while they're under the roof. Otherwise, you could end up like Eli's kids. And like Eli did. What a mess when you don't correct. And so what happens here in this text is, is, you know, David has a situation. He was a lousy example. He made some joy. It impacted his kids. Now his kid, his oldest son, his prince, his appointed heir, 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 okay? His appointed heir made a sinful heir. What's David going to do? How does David respond? And so what's interesting is just to keep on going and understanding in this story what is happening in this, in this whole text. I think David, as a parent, made several mistakes. One, he indulged his kids. He indulged them. The reason I say that is if you look in chapter 13 when Amnon says, send Tamar. David, dad's, dad, dad, didn't you see? Jonadab, the cousin, he could tell something was wrong with Amnon. Dad, didn't you, didn't you have a clue? And so send Tamar, even though there's servants, even though there's nurses, but Amnon... He was real, you know, he wanted this. So what my oldest wants, my oldest gets. In fact, the story gets even more bizarre. Is what happens as the chapters go on that Absalom is really angry. Absalom knows what happened to his sister. His stepbrother raped her. And Absalom, and so Absalom, a period of time goes by two years goes by. And Absalom doesn't even talk to Amnon. And Absalom then, in the next chapter, Absalom wants to hold a party. And what we read is verse 23 of chapter 13. 
It came to pass after two full years that Absalom was going to have the sheep shearers at the, at the spot. It was time for, for the shearing season. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, thy servant has the sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go, come with me. And the king said, No, let us not all go down, lest we be chargeable, you, you know, we owe you. And Absalom pressed him. Howbeit the king said, No. Then Absalom said, If not, I pray thee, you're not going to come. Let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, Why? Do you think David had any hint that they hadn't talked for two years? Why should, why should I send Amnon? But then we read the next verse. Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go down. And David agrees. Because Absalom just kept on, kept on, kept on, kept on, kept on. I don't know about you, but Deb's children, (laughs) when they were misbehaving and they wanted something, they would, if we said no, they thought that the more they asked, they could whittle us down. My kids were the only ones in this room that ever did that. And there were moments that, yes, it worked, and there was moments that for the majority of the time it was like, the more they pressed, you know, not only are you not going to store, you're not going to eat for the next week, okay? (laughs) But David was one of those guys that, I mean, watch the story unfold about an indulgent parent. Go go to chapter 14. And we're advancing a period of, a, a little bit of a time. But We read in verse 25, But in all Israel there was none so much to be praised as Absalom for his beauty. Now, I I want you to pause for just a second. At the time of this story, Amnon is no longer around. He's dead. The next heir apparent seems to be Absalom, who's going to come to the throne, possibly. And Absalom is, so he's the prince. He's, He's the next one in line. You're the king. You're, you're grooming him for the job. I don't get this. His, his beauty was amazing. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Guy had no acne, never a pimple in his life. And when he cut his hair, weighed his hair, it was every year's end that he pulled it. Who cuts their hair and weighs it in public? Why would you... Yeah, I know, I'm jealous. That's, that's what you're thinking right away. But why? Because the hair was heavy on him. He weighed the hair of his head, and it was five pounds, the king's weight. Um, son, this, this is me. Maybe I'm just the odd old codger here. You don't need to be parading around having everybody admire your beauty. You don't need to be going out in public and pulling your hair. It's just like, act like a humble king. Act like somebody that, that is normal. David doesn't do this. David just lets this guy carry on the way he's carrying on. He's indulging this kid. He's ignorant of his kid's hearts. This, this is the amazing part. He's ignorant of where they're at. He, he, he's not aware he, or he's aware and he's just choosing to be ignorant 
But he doesn't know the conflict in Amnon, how great it is that Amnon feigns sickness that he can't. But the cousin knows. Dad, you're in such a disconnect with your son that you don't even know your son's lovesickness for his sister. And then, I've already mentioned, I read the text, that these two, Amnon and and Absalom, they don't talk for an extended period of time. There's no communication. We already read in verse 17. This is is after the rape. Amnon has raped. And Absalom, okay, comes along. And let let me pick up the story. The rape has taken place, verse 17. Then he, Amnon, called his servants uh, that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door. She had a garment of different colors upon her. For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servants brought her out and bolted the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head. She rent her garment of these different colored robes that was on her. She laid her hand on her head. She went about crying. And Absalom, her brother, said, How does, Ab- how does Absalom know this? He's, he's observed it. But David didn't. Has Amnon, thy brother, been with you? But hold now your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's Absalom's house. And then we jump down a little bit. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom, what's your Bible read? He hated Amnon because he had forced or raped his sister. And it came to pass after two full, two full years. Two full years. Doesn't David realize his two sons that could be the princes, doesn't he realize they can't get along? Doesn't he sense that there's a problem when those two are in the room together? D- David's just, e- either he's ignorant totally, he's preoccupied, that he doesn't know what's going on in their hearts, their minds, their spirits, or he chooses not to. Either way, he's in- ignorant of it. He's ignorant of what's happening. And he doesn't understand, doesn't react to it, doesn't respond to it, even though other relatives do. Jonadab knows all about that. He's a cousin. And so as a result, let's take it a step further. He's indifferent. He's indifferent. He's indifferent to their situation. I mean, Tamar, it's, it's, it's knowledge. She's locked herself up. She's taken off the robe She's no longer dressing like a virgin would dress. She's got ashes on her head. It's, it's, there's an awareness that she's mourning over what happened to her. And as a result, what does David do? What is, we read this. We're in the middle of this story. In verse 21 of chapter 13. When David heard of all these things, what's it say? She's, he's very angry. But it doesn't say anything else. I don't know. But it doesn't say, I would want it to read, he went to Tamar. He consoled her. I want it to read, he brought her to his house. He doesn't. She stays with her brother, who understands and sympathizes. David, nothing. And so Absalom, what happens is, is David is ignorant by choice, by, and, and Absalom's so angry. The, the rest of this chapter is Absalom says, hey, let all my brothers come, and we're going to have a sheep shearing party. And when they come, he has told his servants, when I give you the cue, and Amnon is drinking a lot. Pause. Didn't David use wine and drink to try to get Uriah? 
So Absalom takes a page out of dad's own book and he's trying to get Amnon drunk. And he says, when he's drunk and I give you the cue, kill him. And the servants do it. The cue comes and Absalom has his brother slain. Dad was not the one who pushed the dagger into Uriah's heart, but he was guilty. Absalom is not the one who pushed the dagger into Amnon's heart, but he's guilty. He arranged it. And so all of a sudden, Amnon's dead. And David hears, somebody comes and they, they say, David, all your sons have been killed. And David just, he freaks out. He's really brokenhearted. And then they come and they say, no, 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 no. It's Absalom killed Amnon. And so what happens then, after he kills, Absalom flees. And just for your information, just as a, an aside totally, that um, it talks about where Absalom fled in verse 37. He fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. Anybody know who that is? That's his grandfather. He went to his grandfather, who was sympathetic to him. So he goes, and David's response. He has lost his son Amnon, and now Absalom is out of the area. Absalom fled, and it says in the end of verse 37, David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. The soul of David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he had been comforted already concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. And then we read in the next chapter, Joab perceived at the king's heart what it was towards Absalom. Just, just as an aside for your information, David, the king, of, the king here of Geshur, he was a subordinate to David. It wasn't that if David went after Absalom, he would be violating territorial rights. Geshur was already one of those kingdoms that was subservient to Israel. So David could have gone there. He doesn't. He doesn't go. And so he's, he doesn't try to reconcile or put back. And then when Absalom comes back, after a period of time, he's with his grandfather for three years, he ends up coming back. He's allowed back. Because Joab has seen that the king's brokenhearted over Absalom. So Joab works it out. He speaks to the king and says, Here, let Absalom come back. And so Absalom comes back in chapter 14. We read these words. And it says in verse 24, The king said, Let him turn to his own house, but I don't want to see his face. David longs for him. Absalom longs to be close to David. But they don't see each other. David is indifferent for an extended period of time. He lets another two years go by. Two years that they're in the same city, in the same area, and they don't see each other. And Absalom is crying for his father's attention. And his dad won't give it to him. There are people sitting in this room listening to this sermon right now who... As adults, they are still crying for their parents' approval. That if they could turn the clock back and could change something, they would change their fathers or their mothers to be people who were sensitive, who were approving of them, who were reassuring of them. There are young people in this room, I have no doubt about it, there are young people in this room that crave commendation, approval from parents, words of encouragement. 
They want it. They hunger for it. They need it. But the parents are indifferent. Parents are preoccupied. Stuck on something that they're holding against their kid. I don't know. But David made this major mistake. That even though Absalom so wants to be with his dad that he says, Joab, I want to see dad. And Joab says, you're back in the city. That's good enough. No, I want to see my dad. So Joab puts on block this collar. And he blocks Absalom. So Absalom can't get a hold of Joab. So you know what Joab does? He goes and burns one of Abs- uh, jo- uh, Absalom goes and burns one of Joab's fields. So that Joab comes finally and says, what would you burn my field for? Because you wouldn't listen to me anymore. Go to my dad. I want to see him. David's indifferent. David doesn't, doesn't build a relationship. He's the dad, but he's not a papa. He's not a real close person with his son. I don't know about you, but if you lived in a home where there wasn't that type of closeness, wouldn't your heart say, I want to be different towards my kids? I want to make sure that where I was longing and hungering, if God gives me kids, I will make sure that I am not indifferent. I will not let my job, my, my growing up, you know, this idea, well, I wasn't showing affection, therefore, you know, that's the way I am. But your kid needs it. They crave it. They want it. And yet statistics say that dads, moms, spend less than three minutes in actual conversation with their teenagers in America per day. The communication factor, it's terrible. So what happens is we have Absalom as an adult still craving dad's attention. David holds it back. I don't know why. And so finally, Joab, after his fields are burned, says, David. And he has somebody come in and give a parable. And David finally responds and says, okay, I'll see him. And in front of everybody, here comes Absalom. After two years in the city, three years earlier in another country, now after five years of not seeing each other, though it says David longed for him, when they come in, David gives him a kiss on the cheek. And that's it. That's it. It's not enough for Absalom. Absalom, in his anger, in his bitterness, in his disappointment in his dad, says, I'm going to get even. He's wrong. But I'm going to get even. I'm going to take that which my dad considers his most precious item. If it's not me, I'm going to get, take whatever it is that, that he put in front of me. And he goes after the crown. He goes after the kingdom. Starts a revolt. You know, there's, a, there's another mistake that David, David has here. Is that um, in this revolt, David says, don't harm Absalom. He's my enemy. He's got armies against me. But please don't harm him. I still love him. And, and then when Absalom dies... Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. It's too late. Why didn't you make a change when there was an opportunity? Why didn't, why didn't you reconcile when, when the chance was there? But it was too late. I would have died for you. Why didn't you live for him? 
Why is it, dads, that we wait until it's too, too, it's too late to tell them how much we appreciate them, how, how proud we are of them? Why do, we, why do we hold back from our spouses our compassion, our encouragement until all of a sudden it's too late? I wish I had told them. I wish I had said something. I, I wish I had told my parents. I wish I had told my brethren. Tell them. Go home. You don't have church tonight. Mend some fences. Send a love letter to your relatives. Minister. Let them know how much you appreciate them. Worship God in a sense of loving others as God would have you love them. Take the opportunity. Parents, I, I ask these questions in all sincerity. Do you know your kids? Do you know what they're listening to? Do you know who they're listening to? Do you know who their contacts are? And remember, we're talking, these are kids that aren't little, little kids, preschoolers. We're talking kids that are old enough. Do, do you spend quality time with your, with your family? Do, do you have an interest in their interests? Do you talk to them? I, I'm, not telling, I'm not saying lecture. Do you sit down and talk? And let them talk and express without correcting, without, without telling them where they're wrong, without giving them a lecture. But just listen. Observe. Learn. Do you do that with your spouse? Do, do you... Do you answer their questions? Or are you just so busy? So, so busy. Are you too busy to pray for your kids? Even if they're out of your home, do you still pray for them? Do, do, you, even, do you even fast for them? Do, are you one that, if there is a conflict, you want it resolved? You want to reconcile the situation? That's what the passage is about. This man who, who made these huge mistakes, and I'm going to bring it down here, he's inconsistent. He's inconsistent with his kids. Uh, ju- just, what did he do to Amnon after Amnon raped the daughter? Anybody know? You got, you got it. Yeah. He did nothing. He got angry, but did nothing. What did he do after Absalom killed his brother, Amnon? Do you want to guess? He did nothing. He heard about it, he was upset, but he did nothing. What did he do when Absalom was stirring up rebellion? The story reads that Absalom started standing at the gate of the city and saying, hey, if I were king, if I were king, and a rebellion was brewing, what did David do? He's consistently inconsistent. He's like, we are with COVID. Okay? David did absolutely nothing. He did nothing to stop it. Now, you might say, well, the reason he didn't is he was guilty. He felt shame for what he had done wrong. Granted, that is probably true. But just because you did wrong in the past doesn't mean you do wrong in the present. And excuse it. By not doing anything and correcting them, he was disobeying God in the, few, in the present. You may say, well, he had a fear of, of correcting them because he might lose them. The reality is, he lost them. He lost them. Uh, maybe, maybe he might say, well, they were older now. They're no longer preschool kids. 
But David is the king, the one who is his responsibility to enforce the laws of the land. That's, that's the king. Or you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to correct my kids because God showed mercy to me. So I'm just going to show mercy to my kids all along. I'll never correct my kids. Um, God may show mercy to you, but there's still, you will reap what you sowed. Whom he loves, he chastens. And somebody's paid for your sin. Yes? Jesus Christ paid for your sin. So all of this just makes no sense to me that basically David, in order to have had God's mercy, he had to repent. He, the least he could have done is gone to them and, and do what a Nathan did. You're wrong. You've offended God. You need to repent. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no communication here. There's nothing. Which, just let me do this real quick, where his, big, his last mistake, he didn't hold a guy, God's high standard in handling conflicts. God's high standard in handling conflicts, you reconcile. We know that's true even today. We know that God's, if you come here to worship and you know that there's conflict, you go to that person and resolve it before you continue worship. We know that. We know the high standard is you don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. That's God's high standard. You deal with it. You reconcile. You, you, you let nothing be done in strife or in vain glory. Look not on your own things, but look on the things of others. And it all comes down to this. There is no greater joy in our life than to know our children walk in the truth. There is no greater joy. I don't say this in a proud, arrogant way. I am so thankful for what the Lord has done with our kids. And it wasn't me. It was more Deb, as much as I give her a razzing about it. It was more of her input and God's grace that our kids today are walking with the Lord and serving in their churches. And I'm so grateful for that. I am so, so very grateful. Some of you don't ha can't say that because your kids aren't even saved yet. Some of you can't say that because your kids have walked away. And I pray for you. And I don't say this to, to put myself up and you down. But there are some of you sitting here, a good number of you, you're not at where we're at. You're still raising them you still have opportunity to make tremendous inroads into their hearts and lives. Some of you have great opportunity to make those inroads into your grandkids' lives. Don't repeat the mistakes David made. Learn from him. Learn to correct the areas that, that could lead to a devastation to your heart. A broken heart. You see, here's where David ends up. He loves the Lord. He loves the Lord. But he set a terrible example that brought about heartache. It's, it's possible that we love the Lord here on Sunday, but we choose to do something against him on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit every day to avoid the heartache. David loved his family. He loved them. He provided for him. He wasn't close to him. He, he didn't develop good relationships. 
You do different. The job isn't the most important thing in your life. The house isn't the most important thing in your life. What God has vested into your home, those little bodies, those minds, that's the most important treasure God has given you. You work in that. David longed to change when it was too late. I would have died for you. You should have lived for him. So with that in mind, is your family worth some changes? Is it worth you making some adjustments to your family life? Father, help us this day to not just learn, but to walk out and live. Live where we can build relationships. And if it means doing what I mentioned, going home, writing love letters, Lord, bless those letters. If it means reconciling with somebody in family, help us to reach out. If it means setting some different standards for our homes, let there be boldness and braveness. If it means we this week say no to ourselves, let the Spirit of God give us the mind, the Spirit to do so. Father, I pray, help us not to fail in our families, in our marriages, with our parents, with our kids, with our brothers and sisters. Help us. Help us. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name.